This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. We're going to continue our study in the Psalms of Ascent in Psalm 132. If you want to start heading there in your Bibles. I'm sure if I were to ask you how each of you are doing this morning, I'd probably get a mixed response. I mean, some of you ought to be doing great. I mean, you just had the opportunity to get rid of a few of your kids this past week when you dropped them off at college. Like, can you hear the angels singing as you take back your house one child at a time? It's a war of attrition, really. But for others, it might be more of a mixed response. For others, for one reason or another, things are not going well at all. But I ask that question because this morning we're going to be talking about God's presence. And the thing about God's presence is that it doesn't matter what's going on. His presence changes things. For example, in Genesis chapter 15, God showed up and altered the course of history by injecting himself into Abraham's life and kick-starting the nation that would eventually uh, uh, lead to the Messiah. Or in Exodus, the Israelites were languishing in slavery in Egypt, but God showed up and things changed pretty dramatically. Or, or later in Exodus, in Exodus chapter 33, God had just sent Moses down the mountain because Israel had started worshiping the golden calf and Following this confrontation between the people and Moses, Moses is clearly struggling with the will to keep leading these people. And so what does Moses do? Well, he cries out to God, show me your glory. He says, I need some hope, Lord. I need some courage. I need some, some strength. So please show me your presence. And the reason I bring up that example is because that's very odd that Moses would ask for that seeing as he just spent 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain in God's presence. But even still, in the midst of weakness, what Moses needed more was God's presence. And I could go on and on and on. It was God's presence that snapped Job out of his grief. It was God's presence that made Isaiah beg to be used by him. It was God's presence that changed a guy named Saul into a guy named Paul. In other words, God's presence changes things. His presence makes the best times better and the worst times bearable. God's presence gives courage to the disheartened, emboldens the timid, and conquers our adversaries, which is why this morning, as things wind down in the Psalms of Ascent, as the people prepare to go home after whatever feast it was they were in Jerusalem for, we find them calling out passionately for the Lord to stay with them. They call on the Lord to remember David's passion for, for God's presence and therefore not remove His presence from them. And the way Psalm 132 does this is through two sections that, that stand kind of as mirrors to each other. In the first section, in verses 1 through 10, we're going to see the people call on the Lord to remember David's passion for His presence. And then in the second section, in verses 11 through 18, we're going to see God's promise of His presence. Like two sides of a stadium calling back and forth to each other. 
David's passion for, for God's presence on one side and God promising it on the other. Which is why this morning I want to convince you that we need the same thing. This morning I want to convince you that we too need a passion for God's presence. That we need a passion for God's presence. Let's begin by looking at David's passion in verses 1 through 10, at David's passion. Psalm 132, beginning in verse 1. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the Mighty One of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the Mighty One of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah, We found it in the fields of Jaar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Now, what we see in verses 1 through 10, it's, it's kind of like a movie that, that jumps around in time a little bit. Meaning the psalmist inserts these uh, flashbacks, if you will, in order to try to explain why he's saying something in a current scene. For example, verses 1 through 5 is describing a point in time immediately after David had become king, which is recorded roughly in 2 Samuel 5 and 6 and 1 Chronicles 11 and 12. Because David's reign really started, I mean, he came out hot, is, is how David started his reign. For example, right after he was crowned king, Israel's enemies, the Philistines, got a pretty rude awakening of what life was going to be like with God's king on the throne. But, but even though things were going so well right after David was crowned, he knew something was missing. You see, David didn't feel right living in a palace while the Lord didn't have a permanent home. Remember, at this time, God's presence was with the Ark of the Covenant, which was still housed in a tent called the Tabernacle. But when David was made king, not only was the Ark in a tent, but that tent wasn't even in Jerusalem. You see, before David even existed, long before David, the Ark used to be in a place called Ephrathah, which is the area near Bethlehem. Bethlehem is in the area of Ephrathah. But while the ark was in Ephrathah, the Philistines came and captured it and took it back to their cities. But that didn't go well for them because it turns out our God is able to defend himself. And so after he had just laid waste to a bunch of their cities and killed a bunch of the people, the Philistines were like, "Um, here, you take it back. But the Bible says that Israel wasn't in a great place either when the ark returned. They treated the ark with... They didn't treat the ark with the right reverence, let's put it that way, and a bunch of Israelites died. So the Bible tells us that out of, out of fear of all these people dying, that, that the Israelites kind of voluntold uh, the guy that was closest to wherever they were, here, you take care of it. And they left the ark with a guy named Abinadab and his sons in their farm in a place called kiriath Jerem, in the region of Jaar. But here's the thing. The ark stayed on that farm for 20 years. 
For 20 years the ark sat in a farmer's field in Jaar with all the parts and the pieces of the tabernacle with it. The huge cedar beams, the piles and piles of materials for this massive tent, box after box of connectors and rings and everything else. Like a priceless artifact under a blanket in a barn, the ark was forgotten. That is, until David. Until David said, if there's one thing that I want to do with my life, I want to restore the presence of God to His people. I want to find a place where the Lord can reside and His people can come and worship Him whenever they want. A place where grass won't grow up and obscure Him. A place where He won't be forgotten. And so that's what we see in verses 6 and 7. It's like a flashback to a search party. They had heard the Lord was in Ephrathah, but, but when they went and looked there, they didn't find Him. Until finally they found him in a field in Jaar. They found the Ark of the Covenant among the the moth-infested curtains. They found the Ark of the Covenant among the, the rusted hinges and tapestry rings. They found him among the beams and the tent poles that had been warped and bent by decades of weather. And then in verse 8, we see this description of the ark being brought into the city that David had captured for the Lord's dwelling place, the city of Jerusalem, the city of Zion. That's what he says in verse 8. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. We found a place for you to be. And 2 Samuel recounts this journey, the, the journey that began with death, when God reminded Israel of his holiness through a guy named Uzzah but a journey that ended with David and the people rejoicing and singing and praising the Lord because the Lord's presence had returned to the people. Actually, 2 Samuel 6 tells us that David was so excited, so overjoyed that he danced. In fact, he danced so enthusiastically, he embarrassed his wife, Michael. Like when he got home, she said, you're not acting like a king. And David said, I don't care. The ark has returned. The Lord has returned with his people. Brothers and sisters, the reason I want you to understand this, this whole story in its entirety um, is because just like in David's time, we too live in a time where the Lord has been forgotten. A time where people say, I, I've heard of the Lord, but, but I searched over here and I looked over here and I didn't find him. Because we live in a culture where the glory of the presence of the Lord lies obscured in a field of of self-worth and self-esteem and self-actualization. We live in a culture where the grass of retweets and followers and likes has overgrown or grown up around our passion for the presence of the Lord. We live in a time where even those in the church have replaced their passion for the presence of the Lord with a passion for materialism and success and things. Like Spurgeon said 200 years ago, oh, that many were more seized with the sleeplessness, were seized with sleeplessness that the house of the Lord lies in waste. I would say, oh, that we were seized by a passion for the presence of the Lord. 
David knew what it meant for the ark to come back to the people. He knew that the blood of the sacrifice could now once again be made, sprinkled on top of the mercy seat, which meant that the people could once again be blessed by being in the presence of the Lord. So he sang, and he rejoiced, and he danced, and he embarrassed his wife. He's happy to do it. Complete disregard of what people thought of him because his passion for the Lord's presence consumed him. <coughs> now don't get me wrong. Maybe, maybe you do have a passion for the Lord's presence. But perhaps you're a little worried that you might drop dead like Uzzah because like me, you're afraid that your dancing might violate the Lord's holiness. Well, look at verse 9 again, because dancing isn't the only thing that displays a passion for the presence of the Lord. It says, Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. Brothers and sisters, righteousness is born from a passion for the Lord's presence. Shouts of, shouts of joy comes from a passion for the Lord's presence. Singing comes from a passion for the Lord's presence. And you don't even have to sing good. David himself said, just make a joyful noise. That's the first side of this psalm. David's passion for the presence of the Lord. And I pray this church, I pray that Cedar Springs Church would have a passion for the presence of the Lord like David's. But something happened between the the period at the end of verse 10 and the beginning of verse 11. You see, God made David a promise. That's the second side of this psalm. God's promise. He promised David that, that David's throne would be an everlasting throne and eventually one of David's sons would sit on it forever. That's what happened between verse 10 and 11. So look at verse 11 through 13 where God's promise echoes David's passion. Just like David swore to the Lord in verse 2, verse 11 says, The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne for the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. However, however, something else happened between the period at the end of verse 10 and the beginning of verse 11. You see, not only did, did God promise David that his throne would last forever, but God also told David that he wouldn't be the one who built the house the Lord would live in. Meaning, David finally finds a place for the ark to, for the ark to dwell permanently in the promised land, this, this place called Zion. He recovers the ark from a field in Jaar and brings it to Jerusalem. And seeing this, this broken down, weathered tent, he proclaims his great passion to build the Lord a, a dwelling place as magnificent as its inhabitant. But God says, David, you have too much blood on your hands to build me a house. 
but here's what I'll do. He says, I'll allow your son to build me a house and it will be magnificent. So the Bible tells us, just like the psalmist says in verse 1, the hardships that David endured, it wasn't hardships like difficult times, it was hardships like effort. The Bible tells us that David spent the rest of his life accumulating building materials for this house that he so desperately wanted to build for God but wasn't allowed to. In fact, 2 Chronicles chapter 22 tells us that this passion David had for God's presence didn't waver with age. On his deathbed, David charged the leadership of Israel again, one last time to help his son Solomon build this house that he had such a passion for but would never see. And on his deathbed, he reiterated to his son Solomon the importance of this house. He reminded Solomon of the promise that God had made to him, how God would bless this house, how God's presence would remain with his people if his kings followed the law. But unfortunately, we know how that turned out, don't we? Solomon would build this house, and it would be incredible. In fact, it's known as one of the ancient wonders of the world. But even though Solomon kept his promise to build this house, he forsook the the greater charge his father had given him to obey the Lord, to keep the covenant. Solomon eventually followed in the footsteps of worldly kings instead of godly ones. Until eventually the kingdom David so wanted to be united under the presence of the Lord was split in two by his own grandsons. And later, continuing to forsake the presence of the Lord, one kingdom would fall to the Assyrians and the other to the Babylonians. Until this house David so yearned for, this place where the people could be in the presence of the Lord, the place that David spent his life preparing for, until that house was once again destroyed. The gold was stripped off the walls and melted down. The tapestries, the curtains, the beams, all of them were burned Everything was laid waste until the presence of the Lord once again was obscured. Once again, it was overgrown by exile and concealed by decades. Once again, the world was plunged into the darkness that is is brought by the absence of the presence of the Lord. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters. I don't know if you know this or not, but that wasn't the only house that God promised David. You see, God promised David that another one of his sons was going to build him a different house. In fact, he promised David another one of his sons would build a house for the presence of the Lord that wouldn't just be for Israel. No, God said, another one of your sons is going to build a house for me that will be my presence among the nations forever. Which is why the psalmist says in verse 14, he says, this is my resting place forever. This is God speaking. Here I will dwell and I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. 
His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. But nobody knew what that meant. Nobody knew how that was going to work because the priests in Solomon's temple certainly weren't clothed in salvation. That building certainly wasn't forever. It was lying in a pile. The people certainly weren't clothed with joy while they were in exile. I mean, for 400 years, the presence of the Lord was hidden. For over 400 years, God's people languished. They were tossed back and forth like a tennis ball between rackets as the nations just threw them around. That is, until 400 years later, some wise men showed up because, listen, they had heard the presence of the Lord might be in Ephrathah, a place called Bethlehem. And so they went looking. But what they found wasn't just a place. No, they found the Lord Himself. The Lord whose presence David was so passionate for had once again come to be with His people. Which is why He was called Emmanuel. Literally means God with us. He was the great son of David. The, the Lord promised would sit on David's throne for eternity. And he was the son that God promised would build a house where everyone could be in his presence forever. But listen, here's the thing. Before he could do that, before he could build that eternal house, this eternal son of David had to do away with the old one. He had to do away with the old house in order to establish the new eternal one. Because you see, in order to be in the presence of the Lord in the old house, an animal had to be slaughtered and then blood sprinkled on the top of the Ark of the Covenant as an atonement for people's sins. Only then could the people enjoy being in the presence of the Lord. So how's this son going to do that? How's he going to do away with that old house? Well, this eternal son of David had to offer a better sacrifice. He had to offer a perfect sacrifice. He had to offer for all time a single sacrifice for sins in order to do away with the old house. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did when He spilled His blood on the cross, thereby rendering that old dwelling place permanently unneeded by permanently doing away with the sin that, that kept His people away from His presence. But here's what David, nor anyone else for that matter, ever saw coming. You see, just like God promised after he tore down that old dwelling place, three days later he built himself a new one. By rising from the dead, a new place for his presence, a new place for his people to be with him. A place that is far more beautiful, far more accessible, and get this, far more enduring than the old one. You see, he built a place where his people would never have to be without him because he would always be with them. A place where his presence would go with his people when they went away, not just when they returned. A place where he would always be with his people no matter where they were. Because after Jesus Christ, this eternal son of David, rose from the grave, the Lord moved into his people. He made a house out of his people. And how did he do that? 
We'll look again at, at the mirror image of this psalm. Back in verse 9, the psalmist prays, Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Let your shouts for joy. Let your, let your saints shouts for joy. And the Lord's answer mirroring that in verse 16. He says definitely, yes, her priests I will clothe with salvation. And her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame. But on him, his crown will shine. In other words, he made a house for himself inside his people by clothing each and every one of them with righteousness and salvation, just like he said in the psalm. Just like he said he would in verse 17 and 18, he made a place for himself inside his people by canceling the record of debt against us, by nailing it to the cross, and by putting his enemies to open shame when he walked out of the grave alive. Brothers and sisters, oh, that we would have a passion for the Lord's presence because, listen, the Lord has a passion for His presence. The Lord has a great passion for His presence to be with us. It's His passion for His presence that sent Jesus Christ to be born in a barn. It's His passion for His presence with us that fueled Jesus Christ to live the perfect lives that we've ruined on our behalf. It's His passion for, for His presence with us that held Jesus Christ on the cross. And the Lord's passion for His presence with us brought Jesus out of the grave. So how can we not have a passion for the presence of the Lord? Just as the psalmist said in verse 9 and verse 16, no matter what today or tomorrow might bring, how can we not be overjoyed that we're now always with the Lord? How can we not just be absorbed with the righteousness He gave us through the cross? How can we not be encouraged that now the only thing death has to offer us, the only thing death has to offer us is to thrust us permanently into the physical presence of our Lord and Savior? Listen, where there will no longer need, we, we won't need sun or moon for light because His presence will be our light for eternity. Cedar Springs Church, that we would be seized by a passion for the presence of the Lord. A passion for righteousness, a passion for salvation, and a passion for joy.